Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Summer Podcast. This is episode 83. Today I'll be talking about the murder of scientist Walter Sartori. My sources for today's episode are Snapped, Season 31, Episode 7, Oxygen.com, Murderpedia, CincinnatiMagazine.com, and an article written by Brent Donaldson titled Death and the Maid, WLWT.com, and OakRidger.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. A brilliant mathematician goes missing. If he had gone somewhere, he went without his medication. He was known among his colleagues as the person that you went to for the toughest questions. But his genius came at a price. He was a paranoid person. He was so worried that he had all the locks changed. Walter Sartori was born in May 1935 in Pittsburgh. He was a Boy Scout when he was younger and seemed to be fascinated with space. For college, he went to Carnegie Mellon and graduated with a PhD in mechanical engineering. In the 1960s, Walter went to work in Tennessee at Oak Ridge National Laboratories. Oak Ridge produced uranium for nuclear weapons and Walter's work there was classified. Walter was brilliant, but he struggled at home. He was a homebody and lived a private life. He never married or had children, and Walter did struggle mentally. He was a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and had severe anxiety. Walter retired after 30 years at Oak Ridge, but he couldn't sit still at home, so he came up with algorithms for investment of stocks. Walter had several computers and operated them to try to get signals from outer space. Walter was also questioning the existence of God and extraterrestrial life. Walter was taking medications and he did go to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist did encourage Walter to meet new people and develop relationships. In 2008, Walter moved to Hebron, Kentucky. He lived close to the airport and wanted to travel. He often traveled to different conferences around the country to expand his knowledge. Walter did make new friends, but mostly online, and one of these friends included Anne Carty and her husband. They met in an online forum about mental health. Walter became very good friends with Anne. He would visit Anne and her husband in Virginia, talk to them on the phone. Nearly- Anne talked to Walter almost every day, so when she hadn't heard from him since February, on March 2nd, 2009, Anne contacted the police in Kentucky. Anne said she and her husband Robert were concerned about their friend Walter. Anne said she and her husband talked to Walter every day and just wanted someone to perform a welfare check on him. They said they hadn't heard from him since February and a sheriff deputy went to Walter's home but there was no sign of him. Walter checked his mail daily but the mail was stacking up. The deputy went to the house multiple times and even left his card in the door. By March 4th, there was still no sign of Walter. The deputy was more concerned. He had probable probable cause to believe Walter was inside his home. The garage door was found slightly open, so he made entry. Walter also owned a Toyota Prius, but there was no car in the garage. The inside of the home was described as not usually what a home would look like. The furniture was piles of books, and there were about five to six desktop computers in the living room. There were also post-it notes all over everything. Walter's own name and address were on post-it notes posted on the computer, and there were also notes with reminders to get dressed and to brush your teeth. Walter's medications that he was taking for his schizophrenia were left behind. 
The police now had a deeper concern for Walter's safety because if he wasn't taking his medications, it could have led to severe psychotic episodes. During one of the deputy's searches, he checked the mailbox again, but this time the mail was gone. The police canvassed the area, but the neighbors didn't know much about Walter. They said he would wave at them from his driveway, but not actually speak. But one neighbor did say they had seen a local cleaning service at Walter's almost every day. The police reached out to Anne. Anne told the police that Walter was supposed to have gotten back from a conference in Chicago on February 17th. She hadn't heard from him since then but the police were a little suspicious as to why Anne waited so long to report Walter missing. Anne told the police that the last time she spoke to Walter, he was concerned about a run-in with someone he didn't know. Anne said Walter went to New York in January, and when he returned, there was a large snowstorm. Walter told Anne that his sidewalk and driveway was the only one that wasn't filled up with snow. Walter told Anne that a woman had approached his home and came to the front door. In January, the woman told him that they had cleaned his driveway. Walter tried to give her money, but she refused and actually forced her way into his home. She was aggressive and asked if she could clean the house. Walter was afraid and felt as if she was casing the house. Walter also told Anne that he was afraid she had made a copy of one of his keys that he had left out on the table. Anne told the police that at the time she thought it could have been a paranoid episode. The police were suspicious of Anne and her husband and learned that they were received monthly checks from Walter. Walter was actually sending about $5,000 each month. The police checked the airport and mall parking lots for Walter's missing car, but they didn't find anything. The police reached out to the cleaning service, and the man that owned the business said he had been contacted to have Walter's mail cleaned out while he was traveling. The owner said the contact wasn't initiated by Walter, but a woman named Willa. The owner did give the police her cell phone number. On March 9th, the police went to speak to Willa and her husband, Paul, they lived in Union, Kentucky, about 30 minutes away. Willa and her husband were leaving their house and said they needed to get to an appointment. But the police told Willa that they were told she had initiated to get Walter's mail picked up from his mailbox. Willa said that she knew Walter was out of town and that he wanted her to get his mail. Willa said she had met Walter when she was cleaning a house on the same street as his. The police asked Willa when she last saw Walter, and she said she last saw him at the Hebron Corner Market and last saw him on March 7th, and that he told her he was going to Kroger's. Willa agreed to give him a call in front of the police, but he didn't answer. The police then left the Blancs home. Detective Coy Cox felt as if something was off, so he went back to Walter's home. He looked inside the mailbox, and inside was an envelope from Fidelity Investments. A subpoena was issued for Fidelity Investments, and they learned that Walter was actually very wealthy and was actually a millionaire. His money was in investments, and it grew. He was good at moving his money around, and it seemed as if someone targeted him for his money. The police learned that Willa had become the power of attorney for Walter. The power of attorney was executed on February 18th, and no one had seen Walter since the previous day, February 17th. On February 27th, money started leaving his accounts. First, it was a $10,000 wire transfer, and there was also a $20,000 transfer into Willa's account. By March 10, 2009, Walter had been missing for several weeks. The police learned that Willa was trying to liquidate the remainder of Walter's $1.4 million that Walter had in one of his investments. The police returned to Willa's house, but this time Willa wasn't there, but her husband Paul was. They asked Paul for information on Willa, and Paul said Willa had a hard life before they met. Willa was born in 1961 in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Her brother and mom both died when she was young, and Willa had a son, Louis, who she had at 19 years old. Willa and met Willa and Paul met in 2001 when she worked for a cleaning company. Paul was a networking engineer and had a very nice house, and Willa was his housekeeper. Willa was flashy and often wore fake nails with diamonds and rhinestones and drove a Corvette. Willa and Paul got married a few months later, and she and Louis moved in with Paul. Paul said Willa loved new cars, and he was always willing to give her what she wanted. She bought multiple, multiple high-end vehicles from us, um, 50, 60, $70,000 vehicles, and we took care of her. Like, she was literally the only person in the dealership, and she loved that. She actually thrived on it. Paul said Willa brought debt into his life. He had received information that his house was going to be repossessed. Paul said Willa handled all of his finances and was surprised that Willa wasn't taking care of things like he thought she was. Does it concern you that you have given her complete control of your money and you really don't know what the status is? Good business. Do you think that she has exported you financially? She has done some things that were probably questionable. Willa had a gambling problem and drained all of their money. Paul said Willa wrecked his SUV on February 22nd. Willa had been in a car accident in Indiana on the interstate. Paul said from what he knew, she was sideswiped. And Paul was also told that about three other cars were involved. Detective Cox contacted the Ripley County Police in Indiana to ask about any car accidents from February 22nd. On February 21st, Willa had gone to the Argassy Casino on the Ohio River. Willa stayed at the casino until about 3 a.m. on February 22nd, and then she was in the car accident at 4.15 in the morning. The police questioned Willa at the scene, but she stated that her car was hit and that the other cars had left the scene. Willa said she had been traveling to Indianapolis to bring firewood to a friend named Duane. Willa told them that the firewood was in the back seat in a garbage can. This officer told me, I'm like, did you look in the garbage can? And he said, no. In my mind, at that moment, it's like Walter Sartori was in that trash can. Detective Cox was shocked that the police didn't check the garbage can because he believed Walter was in there. After the accident, Willa called her son, Lewis. Lewis rented a minivan and picked her up. The SUV was towed back to Kentucky, and Lewis helped put that garbage can into the minivan. The police went to the car dealership and learned that on February 17th, Willa went to the dealership and was interested in buying a new 2009 Corvette CR1 told me, she said, John, I'm coming into a lot of money real soon. When Will and I were speaking, Lewis came in and he whispered something in her ear, which I happened to be able to hear. He said to her, Mom, the old man wants to get out of the car. So when I said that, I looked outside and their car was parked straight out there and there was an older gentleman in the back seat that I could see with glasses on. So it was clear that Walter had been seen with Willa and Lewis by at least one person. The police again questioned Willa, this time about the trash can in her car during the time of the Indiana car accident. The police asked her where the garbage can was now, and Willa said she didn't know and that it must have been stolen. On March 13th, the police went to track down Dwayne Lively, Willa's friend. Dwayne said... Dwayne was asked about how he met Willa, and Dwayne said they met at a casino in January 2009. Dwayne said they usually played bingo and said that Willa and Lewis went to visit him, but not to bring him firewood. Willa and Lewis told Dwayne that they had a trash can with the remains of a dog. 
They said Lewis had hit the dog that belonged to an older man. Dwayne said they could bury the dog's remains at the house, but Willa said no, they needed to burn it. Willa offered him $1,000 to burn the remains in a field, and they did burn it that night over a five, four to five hour period. Dwayne took the police to the field, and while they were searching the area, the police found what looked like a human bone. Indiana and Ohio forensic experts were called in to search through the ash. They recovered a large amount of bone. They had about five to six bags of remains, and the remains were sent in for testing. Willa Blanc and Lewis Wilkinson were arrested on March 14th. They were questioned at the police station. Investigators turn their attention to Lewis, hoping he'll talk. I think she did use you. And just like she's done her whole life. From the day you were born till this very day. This is your, maybe your first opportunity in your whole life to say, this is about me this time. Detectives find Lewis at a breaking point. I had no control. I had no control. I was the only person. I need both. I need both. Lewis said Willa asked him to go to her house in mid-February. When he arrived, he found Walter sitting in a chair at, in the Blanc's basement. His hands and feet were duct taped, and he also had tape over his mouth. Willa told Lewis to stay in the basement and take care of Walter, and Willa deadbolted the door shut. And I asked him, like, so, sorry, are you okay? Are you right? You need anything? You need help? And he said, he's okay. But are they after him? Or something to that nature? Lewis said Willow would come downstairs with water and food for Walter. Lewis said Walter would throw up after eating, and it's believed that Willow was poisoning him. Walter eventually succumbed to the poison and died. Lewis maintained that Paul wasn't involved or knew that Walter was there. Paul just had ha had amputation surgery and had to be on the couch. Detective Cox believed that Paul was also being financially exploited by Willa. Before her trial, several search warrants were obtained for Willa's house, and inside there was a book titled How to Choose Your Next Prey. Willa was believed to have been the mystery woman that Walter had told Anne about. Willa had been doing her own surveillance on Walter's house. Willa told Walter that she and Lewis had shoveled the snow off his driveway, and at the time, Willa had also handed Walter his own mail, which contained financial documents. Walter had never asked her to do any of this for him. In Willa's car, a picture of Walter was found and also financial documents from Fidelity. They also, the police also found a black semi-automatic weapon. Willa had opened documents that showed Walter had money in very large amounts. The police spoke to employees at Fidelity and learned that Willa scammed her way into becoming power of an attorney. She had used someone else to stand in for Walter. The man was old and frail and had an oxygen mask on. But at this time, Walter had been restrained in the basement. On April 13, 2009, the remains were confirmed to be Walter's. Due to Walter's remains being in bone fragments, a cause of death couldn't be determined. On May 12, 2009, Willa and Lewis were indicted on charges of kidnapping, murder, theft by deception, and tampering with evidence. They were also charged with various counts due to theft, including exploitation of an adult. 
the prosecution was seeking the death penalty in the case against Willa. In December 2011, Willa pled guilty to all charges and she was sentenced to life without parole. In September 2012, Lewis pled guilty to kidnapping, abuse of a corpse, and exploitation of an adult. He was sentenced to 30 years. Money drove Willa Blanc to do the things that she did. She was just very good at playing and acting and she was a good person. But at the end of the day, she was a master manipulator who knew how to get what she wanted. The rest of Walter's estate went to friends and organizations that were included in his will. Dwayne Lively was never charged because he fully cooperated with the police. Lewis will be eligible for parole in 2029. Walter was obviously away from his medications and he succumbed to the poison or whatever Willa was feeding him. We don't talk about mental health enough, but Willa took advantage of Walter because she watched him for so long. Willa was so caught up in this rich lifestyle that she seemed to have. If it wasn't Walter, it could have been someone else. Willa and Lewis both deserve life in prison. I'm sure Lewis was manipulated all his life by his mom, but he still didn't contact the police or even tell Paul what was going on. I'm sure Paul would have called the police or had someone else do it, had he known. My book recommendation for this week is All Her Little Lies by Becca Day. Summary. Everyone's convinced her son is a killer, but Alex Forrester knows him best, doesn't she? Cynthia and Alex have always been like sisters, living and working for years on Cynthia's mother's sprawling farm. They've raised their families together. It was the perfect life until the fateful night that Alex finds Hannah, one of Cynthia's 18-year-old twins, inexplicably murdered in her own home. Soon, Alex's life is spiraling out of control as she questions everything she knows and everyone she trusted. When local detective Stephanie Warner starts investigating Hannah's murder, one prime suspect quickly rises to the fore, Daniel, Alex's 19-year-old son. As Alex fights to protect him, she starts to uncover disturbing truths. Friendship, family bonds, even her own marriage are not what she thought, and threats seem to come from every direction, both invisible and way too close to home. It's clear from this book and some cases that I've covered, when a family member just can't grasp, grasp that their child or loved one is a killer. This book is just that, a mother clearly trying to come to terms with her family being torn apart. Did Alex, did Daniel really kill Hannah or is someone trying to make him look guilty? I give this book a 9 out of 10. I hope you enjoyed today's case and I'd love to know what you think. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, email me at itscrimeoclocksomewhere at gmail.com, buy me a coffee, and leave me a five-star rating and review. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation, and remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.